Welcome to the Tuesday Theology edition of the Scottsdale Podcast. At Scottsdale, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of His Word. All right, you guys ready to get rolling tonight? All right, fantastic. Well, welcome to Tuesday Night Theology. We are, uh, we are trucking right along in uh, Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine book. We're so glad that you've uh, joined back with us. I see some faces that were uh, not with us last time, but maybe have, have, have jumped back into the study. So we're grateful to have you guys back. Uh, for those that are watching us online, we're so grateful for you continuing to join us and uh, being part of uh, what God's doing here and helping us to grow in discipleship. So we're going to open with a word of prayer, and then we will jump into chapter 17. That's what I studied. Is that what you guys studied? Okay, just making sure. Because somebody asked me a question earlier. They said, are you doing this chapter? And I said, no, I'm doing a different chapter. And they said, okay, that's, that's good. Um, so let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for today and for the time that we have together this evening. We ask that you would uh, be honored and glorified. We ask that our words and our thoughts, uh, even as uh, the, the days of the hour are waning and we are moving towards uh, resting for the evening, we pray that you would keep our minds sharp and attentive to uh, your word and to um, a truth about you. I pray that you would help us even tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, one of the things that we learned, and I may take this off the stand just because I don't know that I'm going to be able to stand right here. Um, Oftentimes, we've talked about this before, that theological positions um, are defined oftentimes within a particular cultural or religious challenge. Because whenever we think about the Bible, um, it's not written as a systematic theology book. Right? So whenever we open the Bible, there's not a chapter on common grace, right? We don't say, all right, turn in your Bibles to the common grace chapter. Or we don't say, turn in your Bibles to the atonement chapter. Uh, or to any of the other doctrines that we have uh, covered. Um, systematic theology, if we remember way back to uh, week number one, uh, systematic theology seeks to answer the question, what does the whole Bible teach us about a particular given topic? So what is the Bible? When we read it. Uh, and look at different passages from beginning to end. What does it teach us about a particular given topic? And today's topic is really no different. Right? Today's topic on common grace is no different than any of the other ones that we've, that we've examined. Uh, we're looking at the whole Bible uh, to, uh, to find out what God's Word has to say about this issue. As I prepared for this um, <clears throat> tonight, I came across an article um, by Herman Bavink. Does anybody know who that is? Herman, Herman Bavink. Okay, so he was a, uh, a theologian, um, an older gentleman, late 1800s, early 1900s, who traced the origin of the description of our topic or of the topic that we're talking about back to John Calvin, uh, who's a theologian in the 1500s. So whenever he tried to trace back and say, well, where, did, where do we actually start talking about common grace? He actually traced it back to the 1500s in terms of that kind of a um, particular language about common grace. Um, and what he says in the, uh, in the preface, uh, the translators who, who um, translated Bavinck's work described Bavinck's understanding of Calvin's theological thought in this way. It's going to be a long quote, so you're like, oh man, I can't write that down. That's okay. Um, I can give you the quote where it comes from later, so just, just bear with me on this one, okay? So this is what the, the translator to that edition said. 
says, Calvin considered common grace an aspect of God's all-encompassing providence by which he maintains human life and culture as well as the rest of creation for his own purposes. Common grace maintains the goodness of creation in spite of humanity's radical depravity resulting from the fall. This grace is the source of all human virtue and accomplishment, even that of unbelievers who have not been regenerated by the, by the salving grace of God. Thus the goodness still found in sinful humanity, which Calvin maintains we all experience, is ascribed not to humans, that is the goodness that we experience isn't because of us, um, but it is to the benevolence of God toward sinful humanity. For Calvin, common grace served as a fundamental and crucial step in his argument against the Pelagian or semi-Pelagian Catholicism of his day. Now, if you're like, well, I don't know what Pelagianism is, nor do I know what semi-Pelagianism is, kind of have a vague familiarity with Catholicism. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of, of history on uh, Pelagian and Pelagianism. Um, so Pelagius was, um, he was a, um, a teacher in, uh, in the early church, and he taught that God holds man responsible only for those things that man is able to do. Okay, uh, So his perspective was that since God warns us to do good, Therefore, we must have the ability to do good that God commands. Pelagian, the Pelagian position um, rejects the doctrine of inherited sin or original sin and maintains that sin consists only in separate acts. Pelagius argued that sin consists solely in separate acts of the will. So his position is that sin is never a matter of nature. That is to say, there's no such thing as a sin nature or constitutional depravity. That's what Pelagian believes, okay? Now, Calvin is writing against that, and this is where we see this argument for common grace. Um, he also says, uh, sin is only sin when it can be avoided. The, uh, this, to speak of inability is to eliminate responsibility without which there is no sin. Thus, sin is not the fault of nature, but only of choice. Whenever someone asks why then uh, is sin universally present in human race, Pelagius' only explanation is that it is by imitation. That's the the nurture um, uh, explanation. So the only reason that people sin from Pelagius's view is because they've observed sin, right? So Pelagius would say that there's nothing inherent in us that would lead us to sin, but that it's only because we've observed that from the outside. So basically his position is that people are born morally neutral, uh, maybe even morally good, and it's only by them observing other people's sin that they make the direction towards sin, okay? Um, so his point was that uh, Pelagius' only explanation is that the long practice of sinning, uh, they've observed it, imitation, the long practice of sinning, uh, and the long habit of vices. Now, this teaching, uh, even whenever we think of Pelagianism, its primary aim is salvation, um, or saying that man has the ability to take the first step toward God, apart from God's grace regenerating them, so that's the primary context of Pelagius' argument, okay, as result, uh, results or influencing in salvation. But there are other implications for this as it relates to Calvin's kind of response or consideration in this as it relates to common grace. For instance, think about some of these statements that we have or somebody might say to you, okay? Somebody might say to you or you might say to somebody, you know, we have good kids, right? Well... I saw somebody's uh, eyes furrow whenever I said that. Uh, not maybe about mine, but maybe about theirs. But the reality is um, that 
That, that is, are, are we in that statement? Oftentimes, people are making a judgment about somebody's actual ability or moral character, right? So like that there's something innately good in them. Or how about this one? If it may be as somebody that is a believer or a non-believer, and they say, you know, he is a good man. He's a good man. Well, whenever we think about Scripture, what does Scripture teach us about all of us as it relates to our goodness? That there's not one good. No, not one, right? So this, this teaching does have implications for us. I have another one, a couple of other ones, um, one that would sound like this. You know, if you have a conversation with people and you're talking to them about sin, they say, you know, I think people are basically good. I just basically they're good people. Uh, you know, they sometimes they do some bad things, but at the base level, everybody's pretty much good, right? That's what our culture believes, isn't it? That, our, that everybody's basically good, um, that sin doesn't really exist. Maybe this one right here uh, is kind of a more applicable as it relates to common grace. You might read that and say, that sounds like Rabbi uh, Kushner, but it's actually the opposite of what he says. Uh, he says, why do bad things happen to good people? But whenever we read scripture, the question becomes, why do good things happen to bad people? Right? Why do good things, why, why is there any uh, reception of, of generosity or God's bountiful favor on people? Why do good things happen to bad people? And thus, we have the, the doctrine of common grace that seeks to explain the answer to this question. Why can we look around and see that there are good things that happen to people that the scriptures say are inherently sinful, uh, that, are, that are people that are born with a sinful nature? Uh, you read in your book um, from the very beginning, when, uh, whenever Grudem talks about Adam and Eve's sin uh, becoming worthy of eternal punishment, uh, becoming liable to the wrath of God and to eternal punishment. Um, whenever, whenever he writes there in the, in the beginning, the wages of sin is death. This means that once people sin, God's justice would require only one thing, that they be eternally separated from God, cut off from experiencing any good from him, and they live forever in hell, receiving only his wrath eternally. In fact, this is what happened to the angels. Um, but in fact, Adam and Eve did not die at once. Right? So whenever you read that, God says, the day you surely eat of it, you will die. But then we see them eating of it. And then what happens? They don't die immediately. They're still alive. They live for hundreds more years. Right? They uh, reproduce and procreate, and they do more things, ruling and tending uh, the earth, and, and their children uh, have children. Um, so though the death sentence began to be worked out, right, they, they began to decay, they ended up dying, and we see that as a, a habitual pattern in uh, the book of Genesis. The full execution of that sentence was delayed for many, many years. Uh, and so the questions that we are trying to answer is, how can, how can God continue to give blessings to sinners who deserve only death? Not only those who will be saved, but to millions who will never be saved, whose sins will never be forgiven. So that's the question that Grudem asks. Uh, there is a question. John Murray is a theologian. He has a lot more questions than, uh, than uh, Grudem has for us. So this is, uh, I'll give you again his quote and his questions. His questions go like this. How is it that men who still lie under the wrath and curse of God and are heirs of hell enjoy so many good gifts at the hand of God. How is it that men who are not savingly renewed by the Spirit of God nevertheless exhibit so many qualities, so many gifts and accomplishments that promote the preservation, temporal happiness, cultural progress, social and economic pr improvement of themselves 
and others. He also says, how is it that races and peoples that have been apparently untouched by the redemptive and regenerative influences of the gospel contribute so much to what we call human civilization? To put the question most comprehensively, how is it that sin cursed, that this sin cursed world enjoys so much favor and kindness at the hand of its holy and ever blessed creator? So we see that this is the question that is seeking to be answered. And the answer to this question, how can good things happen to bad people, is found in the doctrine of common grace. Uh, you read in your book uh, the way that Grudem defines it. He defines common grace uh, as the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. Now, um, I'm going to go through a couple more of a couple more definitions, and you might just jot down the author, and then you can go look up the definition later. Uh, this one is from a man named Richard Mueller uh, in the Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms. He gives this definition. Uh, Common grace is a non-saving, universal grace, according to which God in His goodness bestows His favor upon all creation in the general blessings of physical sustenance and moral influence fluence for the good. Thus rain falls on the just and the unjust, and all men have the law engraved on their hearts. Uh, gratia communis is therefore contrasted by the Reformed with particular or special grace, uh, gratia particularis, uh, sive specialis. Um, so this is, their, again, the, the pieces of that. We also see uh, the definition from Charles Hodge, who is a 19th century Reformed theologian. He says, the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, of holiness, and of life in all its forms is present with every human mind, enforcing truth, restraining from evil, exciting to good, and imparting wisdom or strength when, where, and in what measure seemeth him good. I'm going to hear you guys start saying seemeth uh, along the way. This is what in theology is called common grace. Abraham Kuyper defines it this way. The act of God by which negatively he curbs the operations of Satan, death, and sin, and by which positively he creates an intermediate state for his cosmos, as well as for our human race, which is and continues to be deeply and radically sinful, but in which sin cannot work out its end. A couple more. Um, John Murray says, uh, common grace is every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. John Frame, a uh, present-day theologian, says common grace is God's favor and gifts given to those who will not be finally saved. Uh, we have John Bolt. Uh, the doctrine of common grace is based on the conviction that prior to and to a certain extent independent of the particular sovereignty of Divine grace and redemption, that's saving grace. So that's just a lot of words to say that. Um, there is a universal divine sovereignty in creation and providence, restraining the effects of sin and bestowing general gifts on all people, thus making human society and culture possible, even among the unredeemed. A couple of more. Louis Burkhoff, a theologian, says, When we speak of common grace, we have in mind either A, those general operations of the Holy Spirit, whereby He without renewing the heart exercises such a moral influence on man through his general or special revelation that sin is restrained, order is maintained in social life, and civil righteousness is promoted, 
or B, those general blessings such as rain and sunshine, food and drink, clothing and shelter, which God imparts to all men indiscriminately where and in what measure it seems good to him. Whenever we think of common grace, uh, we notice a couple of things that we, that we kind of uh, observe from those definitions. First, when we think of common grace, it means that it is something that is common to all people. Right? It's not just given to those who will become believers or who, those who are believers. Uh, we acknowledge from the outset that common does not, does not function to modify grace anywhere in the Bible. You will not find the term common grace anywhere in the Bible. Okay? We see the principle found, but we do not see the word common uh, modify grace anywhere um, in the Bible. One theologian, Greg Allison, points out uh, that the use of the term common does not mean that it is the same measure for all, but universal, extended to everyone. Neither does it mean mundane, right? So it's not common like every day. It's not like, a, you know, just a common thing that it ha- we have. It's not a mundane kind of grace. Uh, though common grace is often taken for granted and detached from its source, who is God. It is anything but dull and ordinary, as seen in bountiful fields, medical advancements, artistic genius, loving families, global initiatives against human trafficking, and much, much more. So common simply means that it is universal, not restricted to believers, but it is, it is universal in its scope. But we also understand that grace means that it is something that is undeserved. Right? It's unmerited. It's not something that's earned. Uh, it is a gift that God is giving to all people, regardless of whether they will be saved or whether they will not be saved. We also notice that this definition is framed with reference to salvation. Specifically, common grace includes earthly blessings that all people enjoyed but are distinct from the spiritual blessings that only believers enjoy. So there are, there are uh, benefits of grace that only believers enjoy, right? We think of communion with God, being able uh, to, uh, to pray and commune with God in a particular way. We think of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and convicting us in a, in a real way of sin. We think of our inheritance in eternity with God. These are all evidences of God's saving grace, Um, But common grace are the earthly blessings that all people enjoy, distinct from spiritual blessings that only um, believers enjoy. Now, when we think of common grace, uh, we recognize that uh, common grace is different from saving grace. Um, We see this in the book. Uh, It is different in four ways. Uh, Yeah, no, it's actually three ways, isn't it? Yep, It's, it's different in relation to its results. We see this as we kind of go through the chapter that it is not, uh, it does not bring about salvation. Common grace does not uh, bring about salvation. It is different from saving grace in its recipients. So it is given to believers and unbelievers alike. Sometimes common grace is extended to unbelievers more, uh, more than to, to, uh, to unbelievers more than to believers, right? You can think about, um, believers that live in third world countries, right? So their experience of God's common grace may be uh, different or it may be less in the terms of the, the, the bounty or the things that they enjoy to an unbeliever that is very wealthy and is, is, has many, many evidence of God's common grace. So it's not even uh, based on our, it is not based on our standing with God. And it is, uh, it is different from saving grace in its source, um, and Grudem says this, and he has 
two, he has a caveat as it relates to this, that it does not directly flow from Christ's atoning work since Christ's death did not earn any measure of forgiveness for unbelievers and therefore did not merit the blessings of common grace for them either. However, he does mention in his book um, that uh, common grace does flow indirectly from Christ's redemptive work uh, because of the fact that God did not judge the world at once when sin entered it is primarily or perhaps exclusively, as Grudem says, due to the fact that he planned eventually to save some through the death of his son. Right. So it is not a direct, uh, it is not directly flowing from Christ's atoning work, but indirectly in the fact that Christ's atoning work uh, was seen beforehand by God um, and God um, preserved the world through common grace in looking forward to his redemptive work. Okay, you guys catch all those definitions? All right, you guys are good. You, you got them, in, you got them in, the, in the brain trust there. All right, fantastic. Um, so again, just a reminder for us, uh, and we're going to go through the examples of these, some of the things that you guys see in that. And I'm gonna, I want to see some of the additional things that maybe you guys have observed as it relates to common grace, maybe particular examples that you've seen. Okay, so we see kind of categories, but then there are some uh, things that you maybe see in your everyday life as examples that you would like to share as well. Um, so we're going to move on to the examples of common grace, examples of common grace. Uh, the first place we see that is in the physical realm. This is what Grudem talks about first. Um, that unbelievers continue to live in this world solely because of God's common grace. Every breath that people take is that of grace. For the wages of sin is death, not life. Moreover, as Grudem says, the earth does not produce only thorns and thistles or remain parched. But God's common grace, remember it is for all people, uh, produces food and materials for clothing and shelter, often in great abundance and diversity. We see this in the passage uh, in Matthew chapter 5, um, where Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so they may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then again, here's a point into God's uh, care for his creation and for the people that are on uh, the earth. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So uh, God's gift of rain, God's gift of sustenance, God's gift of the sun and the moon and all the things that we enjoy are not contingent upon our relation to him, um, but are exercised as his uh, grace is shown uh, in the physical realm. We also see uh, whenever Paul, as you, as you read in Acts chapter 14, for God uh, did good and gave from heaven rains and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And in that, Paul says to him, the reason he did this is that he left, he did not leave himself without a witness. Points us, us back to this is a, a reminder of God being the one who is exercising uh, this grace. We also see um, in the Old Testament opportunities um, for how God does this, how he provides in the physical realm uh, for life and for um, abundance. Uh, in uh, Genesis 39, 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in house and field. Again, this is a, a pagan ruler uh, that God chose to bless uh, with abundance of food and, um, and harvest and again, we see that he did bless him because of Joseph, but we see God giving to uh, pagans and for people who were not believers um, abundance in the physical realm. We also see 
Uh, do you guys see in the intellectual realm? Did I just die? Can you guys still hear me? Okay, good. Um, the intellectual realm. Um, we see that all people are not given over to lying, irrationality, and ignorance to their fullest extent. Right? So common grace in the intellectual realm um, allows unbelievers to have some grasp of truth. Right? So that the unbelievers are not just completely embracing untruths and lies. Right? So there is rationality uh, within even unbelievers. They're, they have rational faculties. They can think and reason. Um, they have some grasp of truth. Maybe some have more intelligence and understanding than believers do. Right? So uh, this is a, a common work of God that is not dependent upon somebody's relation to God. So intelligence is not a qualification for being saved, right? We see that as you look around the world, that there are people that are very intelligent by God's common grace, by his general blessing on our world, and yet they do not trust the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not trust him for salvation. We see uh, even in that, that God's common grace in the intellectual realm is seen in the fact that all people have a, a knowledge of God. We see that in Romans chapter 1. They, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. The common grace of God in the intellectual realm also uh, results in an ability to grasp truth and distinguish it from error, to experience growth in knowledge that can be used in the investigation of the universe and the task of subduing the earth. This means, as we think about this even even uh, as you interact with students or people in our world, uh, that uh, all science and technology carried out by non-Christians is a result of common grace, allowing them to make incredible discoveries and inventions, to develop the earth's resources into many material goods, to produce and distribute these resources, to have skill in their productive work. Uh, It means, as Grudem says, that every time we walk into a grocery store or ride an automobile or enter a house, We should remember that we are experiencing the result of the abundant common grace of God poured out so richly on all mankind. And you guys, uh, many of you work in uh, a variety of fields, right? And um, the people that you interact with are not all Christians, are they? No. And yet whenever you interact with them, they are are making valuable, productive investments in whatever, whatever realm that you're a part of. Uh, They are maybe helping problem solve. Uh, They are helping uh, be uh, helpful in moving the company forward, potentially. Maybe in inventing and creating systems by which the company can function better, which ultimately can help in a variety of ways in our world. So uh, we see that God's common grace is uh, being exercised in the intellectual realm. We also see it in the moral realm. Sometimes whenever people use words like total depravity or uh, things like that, the, the, uh, the thought is that people are just bad, right? Like that they are as bad as bad can be. And you have in your mind this picture of the worst serial killer in the world whenever you think of the word, word total depravity. Uh, the reality is um, that people, because of con- God's common grace, are not as bad as they could be. This is God restraining people from being as evil as they could be. 
Again, he, he contrasts it with the demonic realm, uh, people. He, he contrasts people living under God's common grace with the demonic realm, which is totally evil and devoted to destruction. Uh, and yet we see in our world uh, that God restrains evil, even in the midst of, uh, of a world that is, that is uh, raging against him. Right? So we see this in a couple of ways. We see it from Scripture in Romans chapter 2. Uh, whenever we see that God has given people a, a moral compass within our uh, consciences, uh, when Gentiles who have, who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, he's talking about um, the Mosaic law or the, the, the written law, they show that uh, what the law requires is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. We see this is the sense of inward right and wrong that God gives to all people, which means that they will frequently approve of moral standards that reflect many of the moral standards in Scripture. Not all judges, lawyers, policemen are believers. And yet, we see them upholding standards of law. We see that there are lawmakers who are not believers, and yet they affirm right moral choices, right? They are seeking to pass laws that are in line with what God's word would approve as a right moral choice, okay? So this is God's common grace uh, in our world. We also see it in the creative realm. Now, this is a shorter one that uh, Grudem talks about for us. Uh, God has allowed significant measures of skill in artistic and musical areas, as well as in other spheres, uh, spheres in which creativity and skill can be expressed, such as athletics, cooking, writing, so forth and so on. Um, God gives us the ability not just to create, but to appreciate beauty in many areas of life. And in this area, as well as the physical and intellectual realm, the blessings of common grace are sometimes poured out on unbelievers more abundantly than unbelievers. If you heard me sing, you would know that this is a reality. Right? That there are many unbelievers that sing far, far, far greater than I do. Or that play musical instruments better than anybody that we have on staff here. Or anybody maybe that the Christian world could produce. We have people that are uh, non-believers that do a great job of, of creating art. Uh, that are absolutely beautiful. And so we see this as God's common grace uh, in helping us see and appreciate beauty uh, because we understand that he is a, a creative God, too. Uh, fifthly, we see that in the societal realm. In this, um, we see the relation of various organizations and structures in human society that ultimately provide for the advancement of humanity or its care uh, in, in the world. Um, human government is a result of common grace uh, instituted by the prince in principle by God after the flood and clearly stated in Romans 13, 1, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It is clear that government is a gift from God for mankind generally, uh, and Paul says that it is God's servant for you, and God uses that to restrain evil in the world uh, in, many, in many ways, uh, shapes, and form. And he does make that statement near the, the, uh, the bottom of that, that uh, section, that like all other blessings of common grace that God gives, 
they can be used and are used oftentimes for either good or evil purposes, right? So we're not saying that common grace always equals redemptive and God-glorifying um, uh, work, right? So we would say that there are um, artists, though they are functioning under the auspices of God's common grace, it's not saving in that manner, they may also produce very vile work, right? Um, that is still something we see that can be used, at least in terms of their application of that is an abuse of God's common grace, right? We see that even in governments that are oppressive. Uh, that is an abuse of God's common grace. It's not a right application of that common grace uh, that is given to all people in all places. Sixthly, uh, we see in the religious realm. Now, this one is um, more in line with God's work uh, in some ways through um, his people, right? Um, God's common grace brings some blessings to unbelieving people. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And since there's no restriction, he says, in the context simply to pray for their salvation, and since the command to pray for our persecutors is coupled with the command to love them, it seems reasonable to conclude that God intends to answer our prayers even for our persecutors with regard to many areas of life. So uh, in this one, he's saying that the common grace is actually, in some ways, um, mitigated through God's saving grace as believers are praying for God's work in other people's lives, right? So that there is a, a movement uh, as it relates to that, which kind of leads us to a question. Because he's talking about prayer, religious realm. Uh, does God hear the prayers of the unsaved? Does God hear the prayers of the unsaved? He hears the prayers of the unsaved. Help me understand where you get that from. I just want to see how we get that. Because I have a reason. It's kind of a, I kind of have a, um, this is a almost trick question. This one is. So does God hear their prayers? What's that? God's aware of everything. God hears everything, right? That's true. That is an absolutely true statement. God hears everything. There's nothing that God does not hear. Um, there's nothing that God does not see. There's nothing that God does not know. Psalm 139 uh, says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. So before we ever even speak, God knows what we're going to say. So he knows and he hears the prayers of the unsaved. Now let's nuance that a little bit because Grudem does, and I have two ways in which we might say it. First is, uh, does God answer the prayers of unbelievers? So that's one way we could say it. Um, if we want to stay in line with the first one, it would be, does God hear the prayers of the unsaved with a view to answer them, right? So does God answer the prayers of unbelievers? And if he does, I would like for you to be able to give me a biblical reason for why he does or how he does. All right, let's see if we can come up with, maybe we should do a, a bow our heads and close our eyes and we'll just do a, a poll. <laughs> Everybody, nobody looking around and we'll just see who affirms that and who doesn't because I, I think that we may have a, maybe a split crowd here. So, all right, so does God answer the prayers of unbelievers? Okay. Some, sometimes. 
Okay, so sometimes, no, sometimes, okay, no, okay. When he feels led to? Okay, prayer for salvation, right? So that, there's, there certainly would be. But that would be the exception. Okay, so you feel like that might be the exception to the rule? Okay. Exception proves the rule. Huh? Okay. Mr. Emery, what, what, give me your, let's get a, let's, let's see. I think in the Gospels, okay. there's a lot of stuff in there that shows that he does. Okay. Because we know that Jesus, he is God. Right. In the flesh. Okay. And there were several people that cried out to him to be healed. Okay. He healed them. Okay. But he didn't require them to be saved at that time. Okay. Yet he healed Okay. All right. All right. So, yeah, okay. he did. He did require gave faith. faith. But so, an unbeliever, he may not be a believer, but he has faith that, that God can heal him or he wouldn't be praying to God because, I mean, there were several instances where that people cried out to him for safety. Okay. To be healed. All right. So if they didn't think he was God, were they praying to him or were they just crying out to him? If you hear somebody's a healer and you have nowhere else to go because they didn't, they right. have doctors. Okay. Why wouldn't you just take yeah. a chance and say, please heal me? You know, heal right. He still heard. Yeah, so he did. He heard and he did. He, res- he, he healed them, right? Yes, Mr. West. All right. Okay. So maybe we have that. Okay. All right. And I, I do also think that uh, he knows our hearts and he knows, like he says, uh, we only become believers through him. So okay. he may be answering a prayer because that's what's going to bring that person that he knows to him. Okay. Okay. So he may answer it in a way. So maybe there's a, a way in which God is answering it to um to turn, to turn their hearts, but it could or also turn somebody else's heart. could. Why do we need an intercessor? Okay, so you're you're going through. You're thinking of like the John 14. Uh, there's no. Uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Hebrews right. 7, Hebrews seven. Right. So you have the 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 reason that we have access to the Father is through the blood of Jesus. Right. So that that is our that is our path to have a. A communication or an audience, I guess, maybe that would be the word to say, with, with the Father is only because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Okay? So, we all agree God doesn't want anyone to perish. Okay. So, if an unbeliever cries out in, in their moment of stress or sure. trouble, um, again, God's merciful, and I believe that order to bring glory to himself and sometimes the person to salvation he does answer their okay their cry. all right but then there's king saul who cried out and wasn't heard all right so as we so it, it's this is i'm not trying to settle this debate right now i want to kind of I, I want us to think about this because there is an importance here right um it's important in the sense that uh we we, we want to think biblically right we want to have good a good biblical reason for why we would say uh, yes or no, right? So we don't just want to say, well, I think that God would do that. Yeah, I think that he would. Um, We want to have a biblical reason to be able to say, no, I can point to these scriptures to say this is why uh, I do or I don't think that he would, or that I could give someone any assurance that he did hear them pray, 
or did hear them with a, with a view to respond. Um, I did listen to one, one gentleman. Uh, his, his perspective was that this was actually a, a gospel-rooted issue um, in the sense that, um, that whenever we pray, apart from Jesus' work, apart from his intercession, then we are coming as if we are righteous enough to come to God on our own. Rather than saying, no, I have to have a mediator. I have to have somebody that is, that is made a way for me to be there. And so he did view this as a, a gospel issue. And his concern or his statement, his, and it's similar to what Grudem comes down to, um, although God has not promised to answer the prayers of unbelievers, as he has promised to answer the prayers of those who come in Jesus' name. Uh, and in, in Jesus' name, we think of uh, Jesus' righteousness, his ability, his mediatorial office, him being our high priest. And though he has no obligation to answer the prayers of unbelievers, nonetheless, God may, out of his common grace, still hear and grant the prayers of unbelievers, thus demonstrating his mercy and goodness in yet another way. So while we don't have... Um, any verse in scripture that says, yes, God does in the affirmative. Um, and we can say that he is under, uh, he does not promise to do that in the same way he answers the prayers of those who come in Jesus name, which may be, if we think about the, even the unbeliever that says, no, I know that God answered my prayer. This is what I prayed. And this is what happened. Well, it could also be attributed to the believer that was praying the same thing, right? That God answered the prayer of the believer that was praying for that exact same thing, um, maybe even unbeknownst to the unbeliever. So we, we just, I think we want to be careful that we don't um, assure people that God is hearing their prayers, right? Uh, in the same way that he hears the prayers of believers, right? Um, because we do have the mediator who is Jesus Christ. Jeff, yes. Are you using the word hears the prayers the same way you would be using the word answers? Answers, yes. Yeah. So here's with, uh, so I would be talking about it in these two, these two sentences. Here's with the, with the view or the expectation that he will answer, right? So um, not hears as in, uh, you hear my voice right now, right? Because you hear what I'm saying or that God knows everything and hears everything. So he definitely hears the prayers of the unbelievers. The question is, does he hear with the same view to answer as he does a believer, right? In Christ. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's a good question for us to consider um, because it does deal with common grace, right? It is the, the area of, of, of uh, reality that we live in. And it is an opportunity, even in that, for us to point people to Jesus and their need for him, right? Yes. What I find interesting is how often have we heard in times of trouble, well, we've done everything we can, now all we can do is pray. Sure. And um, the last resort. Lo and behold, solution comes. Yeah. And does that person go back and say, wow, God answered my prayers? Well, no. Now, sometimes it just turns into, and it worked. Like uh, the rabbit's foot worked. You know, that's the, that's the plan. That's what happened. So, um, yeah. So, the, uh, continuing on. Yeah, we're good. Don't tell them. Um, this is one of the numbers that he put in there as it relates to um, the, uh, the areas of common grace or the examples but it's really not an example, so I'm not exactly, I was trying to, trying to follow him here as it relates to an example of common grace, but it's just a statement, really, uh, that common grace does not save people, right? That was one of the statements that he said in there, that it is not saving grace. Um, 
We must admit and realize that common grace is different from saving grace. Common grace does not change the human heart. And we, we see that in evidence is that people all over the world experience it, and yet not everybody in the world is a believer. Right? So we would say that there is a difference in the way that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and that people have intellect, and that people are industrious, and people, um, uh, we see God working in people's lives uh, as a result of, of believers' prayers and, and all these things. But then there are still many, many, many people that are not believers. So we see that common grace is not saving, um, saving grace. It restrains sin, but does not change people's foundational disposition to sin, nor does it... Uh, in any significant measure, purify fallen human nature. And we see as our culture tends to um, be more abusive of God's common grace, it is sometimes tends towards more impurity in the culture. Um, and then he does make the statement, finally, we should recognize that unbelievers often receive more common grace than believers. They may be more skillful, harder working, more intelligent, more creative, have more material benefits of this life to enjoy. This in no way indicates they are more favored by God in an absolute sense or they will gain any share in eternal salvation, but only that God distributes the blessings of common grace in various ways, often granting significant blessings to unbelievers. Reasons for common grace. Why does God do this? I asked our kids today, I said, why do you think that good things happen to bad people? Why do you think God... Why do you think that happens? And uh, my seven-year-old said, to show them that God loves people. That's what he said. That was his answer. Uh, God allows good things to happen to bad people to show that he is a loving God, that he loves people. And we see uh, in common grace, there are reasons. There are reasons. Why does God bestow grace on undeserving sinners who will never come to salvation? He suggests four reasons. One, to redeem those who will be saved. The Lord is not slow, and this is the verse that you were talking about, Mr. Mark. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish, perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. If God, um, we, we see just a reminder that uh, his common grace is to redeem those. It is to provide a time, right, for them to hear the gospel, for them to respond to the gospel, to demonstrate God's goodness and his mercy, to demonstrate God's goodness and his mercy. Uh, we see that um, uh, God's goodness and mercy are not only seen in salvation of believers, but also in the blessings he gives to undeserving sinners when God, as he writes here, is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. Or in Psalm 145, 9, that the Lord is good to all and his compassion is over all that he has made. Louis Burkhoff says that God showers untold blessings upon all men and also clearly indicates that these are the expressions of a favorable disposition in God, which falls short, however, of the positive volition to pardon their sin, to lift their sentence, and to grant them salvation. <coughs> Number three, uh, it is to demonstrate God's justice. And this is uh, when God repeatedly invites sinners to come to faith and they repeatedly refuse his initiatives, his invitations, the justice of God in condemning them is seen as much more clearly. Again, this is a reminder for us as we interact with people not to receive the grace of God in vain in some senses, 
um, and also to be, uh, be careful about how they use the thing God's, things God has given them. Um, by, we see how he says in, uh, in Romans, by your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We also recognize in the Psalms, uh, there are times whenever God does not execute judgment immediately. And he says that my si- in my silence, you thought that I was like you. And in that, we see that sometimes people continue on excusing their sin and going their own way because they think God, because maybe they are getting some kind of a material blessing in life, is okay or condones their activity. And yet we see that God does not uh, relinquish his righteous standard and he is not uh, condoning their behavior or their activity or actions because of his common grace towards them. Fourthly, it is to demonstrate God's glory. Finally, God's glory is shown in many ways by the activities of human beings in all areas in which common grace is operative. We think about that in terms of beauty, right? Whenever someone paints a beautiful picture as an unbeliever, this just points to the creativity of God, the one whose image we bear. As we relate to our world as image bearers, we create things. We work industriously. Uh, these things in times where morality is, uh, is acted. Um, these qualities point, even in an unbelieving person, to the character and quality of God. The, they nonetheless reflect the excellence of our Creator and bring glory to God. Not perfectly, but nonetheless, he says, significantly. Now, how do we respond to this? What should our response be to the doctrine of common grace? First, he has three, point, he has three points here. First one is common grace does not mean that those who receive it will be saved. Um, we were reminded, even as he writes here, the most moral and kind of our neighbors still need the gospel of Jesus or they will be condemned for eternity. This means that maybe God in his kindness Uh, in his working in their lives, in his grace towards them, they are super moral, right? They may be like the most, they may be more moral than you are, right? So their convictions may be more uh, more rigid than yours are and is related to all kinds of things. We recognize that God's common grace is not saving grace and so their morality does not earn them any favor with God. Just because he's been gracious to them in, uh, in his kindness and has given them a disposition of morality doesn't mean that they are saved, okay? So it reminds us that even the most moral people uh, need the gospel. Most moral people need the gospel. Two, we must, not, we must be careful not to reject the good things that unbelievers do as totally evil. By common grace, unbelievers do some good. And we should see God's hand in it and be thankful for common grace as it operates in every friendship, every act of kindness. Uh, ultimately, we see, um, though the unbeliever does not know it, it is ultimately from God and deserves the glory. He deserves the glory for it. In fact, uh, Bavink, in his uh, writings, was appealing to common grace as a means by which they could promote uh, societal change in some capacity. They say, look, God has been commonly gracious to all of us, uh, we can use this, we can kind of lean on this to enact some social change, to be able to, uh, to do this as it relates to uh, the movement of, um, of uh, human flourishing in some capacity. Third, the doctrine of common grace should stir our own hearts 
to a much greater thankfulness to God. This is a good reminder for us. When we walk down a street, he says, see a house, gardens and families dwelling in security, or when we do business in the marketplace and see the abundant results of technological progress, when we walk through the woods and see the beauty of nature, when we are protected by government, when we are educated, uh, when we, we sh uh, should realize not only that God and His sovereignty is ultimately responsible for these blessings, but also that God has granted them all to sinners who are totally undeserving of any of them. These blessings in the world are not only the evidence of God's power and wisdom, they are also continually a manifestation of His abundant grace. The realization of this fact should cause our hearts to swell with thanksgiving to God in every activity of life. So as we see things uh, in terms of God's grace being exhibited rightly, we should give God the glory for that. We should operate in thanksgiving uh, whenever we are safe and secure, whenever there are laws that are passed that are uh, honoring to the Lord and morality is, uh, is upheld, uh, whenever people's prayers are answered and we see God working as we pray for them. It may, even as we think of, um, of responses to common, God's common grace, uh, should maybe drive us to pray more for unbelieving friends. Uh, pray more for them to have to have those, those realizations that something outside of me is working in this situation. Uh, it's not me. <laughs> I'm not praying to God, but maybe somebody else is praying on my behalf. Uh, and we can see uh, the effects of God's work in us being used uh, to uh, minister to those who are around us. So I would encourage you guys with, uh, with, this, with uh, this teaching and uh, let's pray. And then if we have any questions, we can, we can discuss those uh, here in a moment. Father, we thank you again for tonight. Uh, thank you for your grace in our lives. Uh, we praise you, Father, um, that in your kindness and in your mercy, uh, you have used common grace uh, to give us at least a picture of uh, who you are, um, that you have worked in, uh, in that, and you've also, in your common grace, uh, preserved us to the point where we heard the gospel and were able to respond in faith. Uh, we recognize that this is totally a gift of your kindness to us, and we pray that you would help us um, to be grateful for that even today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media and tag us at Scott's Hill. Till next time.